Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of M Panorama, uh, a sequence of podcasts organized by the MPA class here at the LKY School of Public Policy. And we have a really interesting topic that we're going to delve into uh, today, um, and we hope that this is going to be something that really brings uh, a lot of passion to the to the table. Uh, we're going to be talking about food, and we're going to be talking about recipes, and we're going to be talking about delicious things that we just love to eat and enjoy. But we're also going to be looking at food security. We're going to be looking at policy matters related to that. We're going to be looking at farm to fork and all sorts of things related as well. But what's brought us together here today is our passion for food and our passion for enjoying food and cooking. Joining me today are some fellow foodies from our MPA class. And maybe I can ask them to give a quick introduction to themselves. Noel, would you like to go first? Hi, I'm Noel. Um, so, so really, um, thank you for having me on this podcast. And uh, I'm really excited about uh, talking about my relationship with food, which, uh, which interestingly for, for, for someone like myself, uh, didn't start off that way. My my childhood was very much an obsession with uh, with Kentucky Fried Chicken, KFC. Uh, uh, please tell me I'm not the only one. Uh, and, and then I, it was only really in my teenage years um, that, that, that I got into enjoying foods um, from, from other cultures and from, from international cultures. I'll, I'll I'll go a little bit into that uh, when we start the podcast, but uh, it's a bit about myself. Fantastic. Yeah, hi, this is Somnia, and um, I'm very excited for joining this because uh, in uh, Cambodia, we have a lot of variety of food, a lot of species and green bean, and I'm happy that my mom and my grandma are very best cooker, so I'm very happy to join this, and I hope that I could uh, share a lot of experience and the food and culture, so um, thanks. Scott, would you like to go next? Hi, uh, everybody. I'm Scott. Um, I'd just say that my relationship with food, food is definitely my, my longest-term relationship and remains my uh, most, most important and loving relationship. Um, but, yeah, so, you know, as an, as an Australian, we, we, we have a, a lot of different foods that we grew up eating, and I can still recall the first time that I ate something that was not sort of my mum or grandma's cooking, and I remember it being a very blissful time. So we can go further into that as the conversation progresses. Fantastic. So we've got quite a cross-section um, of countries, of cultures, of attitudes to food. And I'm Rohit Segu. Um, I call myself a failed chef. Uh, that was my first love and passion. Uh, I can make a pretty mean lasagna if you really want me to. Uh, but what I really, really love to do is talk about food and enjoy food and just experience all of the different ways that we can understand uh, perspectives through food, through the language of food. So this is absolutely a, a great group uh, to be around the table with. I guess a good question to sort of start off with, with all these foodies here and the ones who are listening as well. What's your earliest memory of food? And, you know, what was it that really made you feel that this is something that's really interesting and I want to you know I, I want to eat more of this I want to really be a part of this sort of you know 
tasty experience. Uh, you know, I mean, there's, there's all sorts of things that have even come to mind. I love what Noel said about KFC. I think every, most everyone had a fast food experience. But what's yours? Maybe Somnia. I mean, I've heard you talk so much about your lovely Cambodian cooking and delicious stuff. What's, what's your first experience when it came to a really, really enjoyable meal? Uh, yeah, thank you. Um, for my first experience, it's like um, Cambodian uh, uh, food, like uh, what we call like um, the a lot of ingredient, a lot of vegetable. Because when I was young kid, yeah, of course we don't like vegetable, but my mom and grandma did like make the traditional soup, which which maybe twelve or or 15 vegetables together and wow. then we have uh, yeah she ha- and she knew that I don't like fish so she tried to make a chicken soup with this uh, vegetable and those vegetables are very soft after cooking and then they, they mix and they told me that it's not only uh, for um, food but it's have for healthy and beauty so <laughs> Yeah, of course, when you are young, you feel like beauty is the best. So I try to eat the soup and the food. And then I feel like I'm addicted to this food because it's very soft and very healthy. After you eating, you, you feel like um, it's very good for your health because there are like all 15 vegetables together, like cucumber. Yeah, a lot of what, not cucumber, sorry, uh, like uh, pumpkin. And there's that what I like, yes. Oh, that sounds really delicious. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, beauty through food. Uh, the nutraceutical market would be very happy to hear you talk about that. But absolutely, I think there's so much about food and the value that it brings uh, through its own consumption. But I guess market, uh, countries like Australia, I mean, they, 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 I remember one of my friends, uh, uh, you know, who was uh, quite from Melbourne, in fact, I think, Scott, uh, he used to uh, shun Starbucks. He would sort of take five steps away from any Starbucks in Shanghai or anywhere we travel. And I realized, speaking to him, that, you know, uh, you know, looking at sourcing of where that came from, the sort of, you know, the actual ingredients, uh, the, 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 the regionalization of the food that uh, Australians would consume was a very important thing. Is that something that you share as a as a value, as a trait? Uh, thanks. Yeah, thanks, Rohit. I think, um, I mean, this is this is a regular, probably, situation for people all over the world, except for perhaps a country like Singapore, which is very unique in terms of its sort of um, sort of lack of a strong kind of big agriculture agricultural industry itself. But yeah, I think Australians are are both very proud of, of their own food um, and the myriad different kinds of foods that you can get in Australia. But of course, as an agricultural producing nation um, and an you know, environmentally conscious nation, or hopefully many people are at least, I think they, they, they see you know, locally sourced and locally produced and locally owned is, 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 is probably you know, always going to be a better sort of ethical, more ethical and more sustainable decision than, than sort of something that um, that's coming from elsewhere. And, and I mean, you know, something like Starbucks, it failed in Australia the first time it, it, it came in. Cause it, it, it really thought, they really thought that it could, um, what do you say, sort of just out, outgun sort of a lot of, I mean, there's not really many Australian chains of coffee stores. There are some, but mostly it's just kind of 
people like having their own little coffee shop, coffee shop and, and I think they thought they could kind of knock them out of the park and they, they failed miserably the first time because they realized that they couldn't compete against sort of, yeah, the, the pride and sort of um, parochial sort of nature of coffee drinkers in Australia. And then eventually they came back into the market and, and, and just sort of opened up shops around kind of important tourist destinations for a tourist market, which is a, obviously a clever decision. But I think more broadly, yeah, in the Australian context, I think we do our best to try and consume foods that, that are local. Um, but of course, I recognize that that's not always possible. And then sometimes you still just want to eat foie gras and you can't make foie gras in Australia. It's, it's seen as unethical, so you have to import it. Right, that's right. Yeah, that, that's 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 a touchy topic. The whole thing about foie gras and the uh, the enjoyment of that. But interesting, we, we've just heard uh, from Sonia about the uh, the ingestion of food and its uh, ability for uh, for for beauty as well as nutrition. And we've heard about the pride of food and knowing the source where it comes from. Noel, what's your what's what's your perspective? You straddle Malaysia and Singapore. You you've got best of both uh, cultures in you and. You, you know, Malaysians by heart are probably the biggest foodies that I've ever known, having grown up in Malaysia myself, in the myriad of choices and the passion of food. But how's your, how, how's your experience from that way been? I mean, um, how, how do you see food from, from that point of view? Yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's been an interesting journey um, for, for, for me. Um, because growing up uh, as, as a child, um, I, I come from a family of, of 50 eaters, um, which was why when I, <laughs> when I was introducing myself, uh, you know, that, that, that foodie thing didn't really kick in until really my, my, my teenage years. Um, we, we ate at home a lot. Um, of course, my mom cooked, my, my, my grandma cooked. And, uh, I mean, uh, to, to their credit, they cooked very well, but, but because, you know, the, the entire family were, were, were picky eaters, the, the, the kind of food we used to get was also quite, quite limited, I would say. Um, it, it was really only in my teenage years when I, when I went out on my, on my own and started exploring things on my own and I realized this, and there's a whole world of, of food out there. <laughs> you know? And, uh, um, I, I have to say as a result of which I am, I, I don't draw that, that, that line when it comes to culture. I, I, you know, some, some Singaporeans do and some Malaysians do, you know, that, that, that this, uh, this fried noodles, this chakritao is superior to that. Um, but, uh, but, but because of, and you know, you know, my late, uh, my, my, because of being a late bloomer, I've just come to really enjoy everything. And, uh, so my, my, my grand, grandparents and my parents kind of look at me and they, they, they think of me as this trash can, you know, this, this <laughs> he just, he just eats everything, including the things we don't. Um, and, uh, so, so that's, that's really my perspective of, of, of food and culture. I've come to unwittingly struggle uh, those boundaries as a result of, of, of my upbringing, I would say. Yeah, well, look, I mean, I'm still the old school. I, I still call it Roti Chennai. Uh, the Roti <laughs> doesn't come as easy on my lips, uh, much to the chagrin of my Singaporean friends and families. But uh, the fact is that the melting pot, I guess, that you were that you were growing up in and the later yeah. that you experienced meant that you're you're sort of really able to sort of ingest 
as much of the culture that that's around you and for for the listeners here you got to know something about Noel i mean uh, the 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 way that he sort of appreciates food and 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 the culture of food food knows no boundaries and if you ever want to have the most interesting experience you've got to sit down with Noel and and really enjoy some <laughs> indian food uh with him which he knows a lot about which is amazing so I, I, I do yes uh, well you know, but, you, <laughs> but but that, that, that there is a reason for that um i i was i was brought up by indian nannies uh, they, 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 they more well. They, they 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 came to clean the house, and also I think the culture in Singapore is to to, to grow up with uh, either Indonesian or Filipino caretakers. Mine, mine were all Indian. That's right. That's that's, that's <laughs> very interesting insight. I mean, you know, when you talk about early year influences, and and I'm sure some of our Singaporean listeners would would agree that when you've had uh, you know help who come from. Other uh, countries and and what they bring is this lovely sort of new taste experience that isn't naturally meant for the house. I mean, my two boys have grown up in different countries from South Africa and you know Shanghai and all over the place, and every time it's always been this new experience brought into the house, um, which is really interesting. I mean, Sonia, from your perspective in Cambodia, there is obviously uh, a lot of I guess family connection. I would imagine. I mean, there's you know generational uh, enjoyment of food that might happen around festivities and so on do, do you do you do you sort of echo what noel just said that there is this sort of interesting dimension or multi dimension of food and enjoying food when it comes to you know different uh, generations perhaps who also participate in 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 bringing you their different experiences in cooking uh, yeah sure i i absolutely uh, uh, support and yeah, because uh, each country, each culture, they have like uh, historical food and uh, like our ancestor or our great great grandparent have um, some kind of food and herbs, of course, some food that they have herbs and help for your, um, uh, some people, they, of course, it, I believe it because some, you can see the vegetables, some vegetables is very helpful, kidney, for lungs. For yeah, very good for all of those, and I believe it. Everything is uh, our, um, uh, our like because like my mom and my grandma, they are were uh, born in the uh, province city. So the province, each province in Cambodia, have a uh, a different food, and very popular. Uh, some food as uh food as very bitter, but uh because the bitter is very helpful for your health. We have a mushroom. That mushroom is very deep, and if you don't know how to cook it, you cannot eat that. Oh. But in the special for a uh, uh, Spivian province, they can cook it very special. And after you eat, during you eat it, it's not bitter. But after you take a water, it's very bitter. Uh, so you have to take time. Like uh, after eating, you have uh, to take like uh, 20 minutes, and then you can drink water. And some food are very healthy. Uh, uh, for for your uh, what uh, like uh, papaya, we have uh, papaya. We have female and male. And for the male papaya flower, we can cook it, and it helps for prevent cancer. Yeah, uh, there are so many kind of food that um, Cambodian believe uh, this is very uh, healthy food and ingredient. And our great grandparent uh, have the way how to cook it. So some uh the modern like uh, young generation they they refuse to eat, but the parents know how to make the food like make them feel like comfortable with eating like in the other way. 
so they very good at uh, making new recipe. But uh, what I like is I, I like the traditional one because even um, some is uh, very big, but uh, it's help you feel uh, healthy. And I believe it is very good to uh, uh, to keep our traditional food. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, and it's fascinating that you say that because I think that uh, element of what sort of type of food, um, whether that's good for men, whether that's good for women, whether that's good for girls, boys, there is a difference. There is this, uh, you know, one can assume that it's perhaps superstition passed down through the generations, but there is some fact behind the sort of uh, amino acids and the kind of breakdown that happens within, you know, different uh, systems and how that actually creates uh, a better absorption. It's It's actually fascinating that our you know, uh, generation old, uh, uh, I guess, understanding of what food and how food could react. And it's, 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 it's a very interesting fact. I mean, I guess, Scott, I mean, it's, it's an interesting question. I mean, Australia being a continent in itself, I mean, you know, there, there, there's obviously a close association with the land. Um, you know, you talk about the, the center of Australia and the, the Aboriginal origins and the way that, you know, the respect for, uh, the land itself and what, what grew and what flowered from there. And, I, I know this from, you know, I think uh, some experience that the coastal aspects, of the coastal regions of Australia have a very different perspective when it comes to food. But when you go inland, uh, there is this great respect. And, you know, uh, obviously with uh, certain, you know, degrees of drought and the realization about how fragile food and food source is. But do, have you had that experience when you sort of look at the Australian uh, connection with food and you look at it from the West and the center and the the sort of east coast. Uh, do, do you see the sort of changing perception towards food that way? Yeah, well, you picked up some really interesting um, issues there. Of course, you know the Indigenous Australians who um, who are in all parts of the country and have always been in all parts of the country, but of, of course, um, you know, particularly uh, in in more in more recent times, I sus I suspect um, that there's certainly and understanding that they that, that there are larger numbers of those people that are that are still out um, in the sort of sort of central Australia, um, but but I think yeah they have a really amazing understanding of um, of the fragility of yeah of, of the Australian continent as you say, um, and so I was born in, in Alice Springs, which is a tiny little town in the middle of the desert, smack bang in the middle of the country, and um, I'm not of Indigenous descent myself, but. Um, but certainly my, my parents lived there for, for over a decade and, and you know, that they, they sort of brought me up with a strong appreciation of, of the fragility um, of the land and, um, at, you know, particularly in the desert and, and certainly, you know, as a tourist, when you go visit those parts of, of Australia, you can go on with these wonderful tours to learn about the different kinds of foods um, that people continue to eat and actually, I mean, I suppose this is... Um, uh, moving on from kind of the fragility of it all, but, uh, you know, a lot of these kind of indigenous Australian foods, I mean, a lot of people always wonder what is Australian food? And, um, of course, it's a, a kind of a bit of a hodgepodge of everything, but there are some native ingredients that you can only find in Australia, not to mention sort of Australian animals such as kangaroo, which we do eat and it's delicious, um, but also, you know, things such as like finger lime, um, which is a sort of a very, a really lovely um, sophisticated sort of tart flavor which kind of goes well in, with both sort of savory and and sweet dishes but um but i think more more generally i mean in the last sort of well 
um, particularly five, ten years, we've seen devastating floods, um, massive bushfires, um, you know, drought, and coming from a farming family, uh, as I do, um, you know, I'm very, very aware of, of how, you know, how much this devastates not only the farmers, but actually the, the, our food supplies. And yes, you know, in a kind of a pre-COVID world where it was still so easy to continue to import foods from elsewhere when there were shortages of, you know, of what Australia was able to produce itself, um, but, you know, who, know, who knows where we're kind of, where we're going to find ourselves in these coming coming years so um no de def definitely i think most australians have got a pretty strong appreciation of the of the fragility of where we live irrespective of if it's on the coast or or, or you know or, or more central yeah no absolutely i think fragility is is an interesting aspect and we're going to touch upon that in a little bit as we talk about um what we appreciate as we consume it but the appreciation of where it came from and how it's been sourced uh and, and I think you've touched upon, I think, a really important factor that we talk about, you know, certain civilizations that have been, uh, you know, respectful of how uh, food sources were maintained, the natural balance, so to speak. Um, and not just here uh, in, in, in Asia or in the Pacific, but when I was living in South Africa, for instance, the interesting, almost sort of interconnection between what was always surrounding that absolutely beautiful, gorgeous land. Uh, and at the same time, how, you know, uh, immigration over the centuries began to bring with it this almost amazing sort of contribution to what ultimately becomes, in air quotes, the cuisine of that country. And I'll, and I'll give you an interesting perspective. And it's, I think, a little interesting from, I think, everyone here that, you know, we all know that there is a certain cuisine in our in our countries that you kind of ask yourself that how on earth did that did that come about? And the one that really got me was a trip to Durban. In South Africa, and uh, if, if, if you all, and for the listeners, you might know that uh, Durban has one of the largest uh, Indian diasporas in the world, uh, which is, is absolutely an interesting uh, uh, conversation in itself. But one piece of uh, food there that I was absolutely stunned by was something called a bunny chow. And a bunny chow uh, has nothing to do with rabbits. So before anyone sort of raises their arms and says, no, no, not at all. But Nothing to do with rabbit at all. In fact, it's a huge hunk of bread that's been hollowed out and stu stuffed and crammed full of delicious meat. It could be beef, it could be chicken, it could be lamb in a curried way. The most spiciest thing you've ever had in your life. And it's just served just like that. You just scoop it out, you take the bread in one hand and you tear hunks of it off of the other. And why it's called a bunny chow and why it's associated as Indian food, it absolutely is. Uh, even people there were just unable to explain. They just assumed that people in India must be eating bunny chow, uh, just the way that in Malaysia people then, you know, would assume that, you know, roti paratha or roti chanai is something that every Indian would have. And you look at it from that perspective, the Cape Malay food and uh, the, you know, uh, the Western side of South Africa, and then you start moving upwards in the continent and you realize just, how different influences have brought that into our in, in, into our taste buds today. And I guess, Noel, from your perspective, Peranakan food is obviously a very kind of unique aspect uh, known with Malaysia and Singapore, and it brings with it flavors that are almost indescribable. Uh, what, what's, your, what's your take on, before, before I go off this topic, on, uh, on, on, on Peranakan food? And, and what do you think? Uh, uh, is, is, it, is it sort of fading away? Is it, is it losing its glory? Does it? Does it need to sort of still get a little bit of attention? 
Yeah, yes and no. Um, and I, maybe I could speak to this a little bit more because I'm, I'm actually half Pranathan and embarrassingly, I didn't, I didn't know that until a day before my wedding day. <laughs> no, I, and, uh, you know, I, I mean, my, my, my mom's mom was a, was a wonderful Pranathan, Pranathan cook. Uh, and probably, you know, I'm not, I'm not doing her any credit, my, my late grandmother actually, I'm not doing her any credit, uh, um, saying this because growing up, uh, uh, I I didn't spend much time with his grandmother, um, so 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 this 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 side is where all the good you know all, all the good Peranakan cooking was. Um, we'd have a meal with her maybe once once a year, and uh, I can tell you the effort that goes into to cooking that sort of thing uh, is is days, not not hours, days. So when 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 she prepared for Chinese New Year, I I, I have not witnessed it myself, but. Uh, you know, maybe these are stories passed down to, to me from other members of the family. It's days of preparation. Um, and when we did put the food in our mouth, it was magical. But because we spent so little time with that side of the family, I just didn't associate myself as being Ranakan until one, you know, the day before my wedding, my, my mom reaches out for, for, for her kebaya, which she couldn't find, so I had to help her find it. And, and, and I was like, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and, and this was also coinciding with, uh, with, with the Peranakan Renaissance that was happening in Singapore. And I'll go into that a little bit here. And I sort of say to her, so you, are, are you running into that, that, that fan as well, that, 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 the Peranakan fan? And she, she seemed to get a little bit offended. And I was like, why? <laughs> and she was like, we are Pranakan. <laughs> and I was like, and I looked back on 30 years of my life and I'm like, so that's why we've got all those colorful dabas in the house. And uh, so that's why we eat. <laughs> I am clear every Chinese New Year. And that's why we have, uh, uh, you know, uh, um, some fish. Oh, yeah. <laughs> every so and so. Um, so are we losing it? I wouldn't say so. Um, there's, there's a new Pranakan restaurant uh, popping up uh, <laughs> every so often. Not not just in Singapore. There's the places where the Pranakans are generally quite well settled. Malacca, um, uh, Penang. I've, I've not been to. Um, I've, I've not been to Medan. I, I hear that there is a decent Pranakan settlement there. Um, I was in Phuket not not too long ago, and even there, the Peranakan shops are, are popping up. So, so there is a renaissance. Um, uh, but what we are really losing, I I think is, you know, I've, I've not uh, ever since this grandmother passed on, I've, I've not met someone, you know, um, whose who, who, whose family actually dishes out food like that. So, so I think we 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 gain some, we 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 lose some. There is definitely a lot more lot more awareness. But uh, we're also losing family culture where where we cook these things and, and probably for practical reasons as well. It's very, very hard, very, very time-consuming to cook um, you know, traditional Peranakan food. Yeah, it is. I mean, uh, the, way, the way that you describe uh, Peranakan food, I think uh, for the listeners as well, that, you know, uh, the preparation for Peranakan food is is exhausting. Uh, yeah. It's, yeah. And, it's, and it's done to perfection. Uh, and I think there's mm. different... Uh, elements that go into it because it truly is a melting pot of practically every uh, Asian uh, piece of uh, flavor that, that 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 can be squeezed in. But it's interesting because when you talk about certain food and its association to culture, 
I was having a chat with Sonia, I think it was uh, a few weeks ago, we were off on a tour and we were eating over lunch and she was enlightening me on, on, on an aspect of food that was also related to her religion, which is Buddhism. And uh, it's, 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 it's reflection in the food uh, that is eaten because it has a closer association, association to Hinduism in that respect and what they eat and what they don't eat. And I was fascinated because the approach to food um, also had its uh, roots going back centuries as well as it relates to uh, uh, the way that you that you follow, um, you know, your own principles. So, uh, Sonia, to that, what, could, could you talk a bit about how you perceive food through the lens of your faith and, and, and how that sort of reflects in, in what you eat and what you don't eat? But more than that, how you how you relate to that? Um, well, in Cambodian, uh, we are Buddhist, and uh, so what most kind of food are we eat or most kind of food, but uh, we we did follow the Buddhist um, forbidden and animal, uh, some like a deer, a dog, a cat, or whatever. Uh, that is the Buddhist, um, mostly the white animals, because those are like uh, because related to Buddhist, so we, we did not eat this kind of food. But uh, normally Cambodian people, uh, we can we did not uh, have any restriction, very restrict on the uh, food or meats. Mm -hmm. But yeah, because we are Buddhist, so we just follow only some kind of uh, Buddhist. And yeah, because it, and it also depends on the family and the norm or culture, like uh, some family, they did not have any restriction on food, but in Cambodian, mostly we love to eat fish because we believe that fish is more healthier. Like Cambodian people uh, enjoy something more healthy. I can say that our culture is looking for some healthy food for the old generation. So it's influenced to all young generation to believe so. And yeah, after we, we found out uh, a lot of high cholesterol from or from everything so we try to reduce some meat so we try to eat a lot of fish so yeah that's the reason but actually we did not have any uh, uh, very restrict on the food or meat but yes this is a uh, depend on the family and like my family we like have a healthy food so we try to avoid oily and yeah we enjoy healthies and uh, because of um we believe that the healthy food is good for maintain our uh, our body and uh, life. So we eat a lot of vegetable, and we follow our great grandparent like uh, recipe. The uh, so uh, most uh, of the uh, depend on province. Each province have a, a few recipe, special recipe. So we enjoy cooking food. We rotate like from Monday to Sunday. Sometimes different. Uh, food uh, the whole week yeah nice. i mean that's interesting because the, the the freshness of food and the reliance of food in that respect i think has been obviously a very large topic uh, particularly as we've lived through one of the largest the biggest crisis um to hit our generation probably generation actually because if you think about it food systems and we've all talked a little bit about this in our own respective experiences and our enjoyment not just of our current consumption but how generations and sometimes even ancient origins of food have in their own way discovered that you have to have sustainability, you have to have a uh, respect for, I guess, the, the forces of nature. 
And I think, as all of you have said, you are what you eat, ultimately. But what we've realized is that uh, it's going to be impossible for food systems to be resilient to crisis and no more true than living through COVID-19 and the pandemic. A lot of conversation around redesigning food systems, uh, finding ways about how, uh, you know, waste prevention, sustainable food production. In fact, just on the BBC today, there was a uh, an entire segment on the transportation of livestock. And that in itself was not just a contribution to uh, greenhouse gases in itself, but the um, way that we're even looking at uh, uh, processing uh, livestock and, and how that actually needs to now be re-looked at. The question of biodiversity, um, the health impacts, obviously, that that can have ultimately. I guess the question that I want to sort of transfer this interesting, passionate topic on food, therefore, is that how do we sort of perceive the often talked uh, way of policy, and that has been the farm to table or farm to fork, whichever way you look at it, and I think we've heard about farm to school as well. It's been referred to in different ways as a social movement. It's been seen as a way that how do you actually understand direct acquisition from producers that might be nearby, understanding the source, understanding how that's actually been prepared. But it's a matter now of uh, uh, national security, because if we're not able to secure uh, food uh, creation and food source, uh, particularly for countries like Singapore, who have a high dependency on import that way, uh, the farm to table is probably taken on a very different perspective. I guess it's a it's a, it's a, it's an open question to this to this to this group here, um, and maybe Scott's got an interesting perspective coming from a country that really has looked at agriculture and the and the, and the concept of farm to table in a big way. Scott, what's your what's your what's your understanding? I guess of how this movement of farm to table has been moving, I guess, concurrently alongside different attitudes uh, towards food safety, freshness, seasonality. I guess wine, obviously, is a very big topic. Uh, but uh, what's what's your take on farm to table? Yeah, I think it probably um, farm to table. The farm to table movement is is perhaps in some ways a a reaction to you know kind of a, a pre this previous period that we've all been through of an increasingly globalized form of you know kind of agriculture. I mean, we we all decide that we can. That we want to eat oranges all year, so we can eat oranges all year, even if they're not in season. And and um, you know, so I think maybe it's coming from a a realization that there there is a carbon there is a carbon footprint, but there are also other you know impacts of the choices that we make about what we decide to eat. So if I'm deciding to eat oranges that are off season in Australia, well, that means they're coming from California most likely, mm. and you know, it means I've had to travel on planes or ships, which is obviously you know, not necessarily something you, you, you think about. Um, so I, I think that's probably one of the kind of, uh, what do you say, um, kind of reasons for the, the growing movement of farm to table. Um, maybe just sort of like to kind of, um, I mean, I, I'm the kind of person who, who likes to eat organic food and, well, drink organic wine as well. Um, because, of course, uh, what do you say, I mean, ideally the, the fewer kind of preservatives or, uh, pesticides or whatever that are being used in our food, the, the better we will probably feel and the better it is for our bodies. Um, but I but I recognize that, as you just said, Rohit, I mean, I don't think that, I think just as long as we're becoming more more conscious of the kind of the ethical um, sort of implications of our decisions about food doesn't mean that subsequently we should no longer be consuming things that are coming from overseas. I mean, Australia is 
a massive agricultural exporter. Um, and I don't think that that either should be or will be changing anytime soon. And, you know, Australia's sort of agricultural, uh, what do you say, um, you know, prowess, like, um, you know, it's been proven during this time of COVID-19 every day. When you go to the supermarket, you know, you can see all the fresh fruits and vegetables and they all they all say these have been flown in from Australia this morning or yesterday. And, and you know, I think, um, you know, uh, while, of course, we want to be eating things that are as local as possible, sometimes that's not possible. And therefore, it just it's, it's about making other decisions about, you know, the other eth ethical implications of, of what you're eating. OK, so if if it needs to be imported, well, at least, you know, in the first place, was it done properly? Were the animals killed appropriately? You know, these, these kinds of things. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's a. I mean, this is a topic that has obviously become more and more sensitive. I mean, you look at it from different perspectives, uh, as you just said, Scott. But you look at it from most uh, of Asia. You've, you know, it's 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 almost been in the last 40, 50 years that uh, an entire generation has emerged out of uh, not just uh, uh, poverty, but you know, with that uh, rising income and uh, approaching into a larger middle class, you found that there's this greater appreciation for those types of food that were otherwise never available and 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 were actually always seen as you know uh, being out of reach and and that sort of larger population and being able to serve that larger population um, um the type of food that they now aspire to uh, is almost a, a hard one to sort of weigh up against because on one hand you're looking at the obvious scarcity of fresh local ingredients that can't possibly feed everybody the way that they would like and at the same time there's this ambition uh, as one moves up uh, the income ladder, um, that, you know, how do you sort of uh, find the types of food that, you know, your parents or grandparents could, could, could never have? And it's an interesting sort of conundrum, uh, I guess. Uh, no, Noel, I mean, if you, if you have a perspective on that, I mean, it's, uh, you know, uh, it's, it's tough to sort of look, right? I mean, you look at certain countries and parts of this region that have emerged out of tremendous hardship. And, you know, does the matter of uh, the sourcing or the origins of that food really matter uh, for somebody who is looking to now not just feed the family from day to day, but now want to enjoy uh, the fruit of the labor, so to speak? Yeah, and, and this is very interesting that you, you, you brought up that point because I was going to touch on it. Um, you know, and I, I really do see uh, a, a generational gap in, in this sense. I, I, I don't necessarily have the answers. Uh, of course, from a policy perspective, it's it's good to start thinking um, from, from that perspective. Um, with with my generation and, and, and the generation slightly older, maybe uh, maybe five to six years older than, than, than me, I see I definitely see a lot of uh, a lot more awareness of. Of responsibility uh, with respect to uh, agriculture and agricultural supply chains, how how the food is sourced, and I I can say this confidently because the people I tend to interact with at, at work and in my social circles are, uh, are generally between five to six years older and five to six years younger. Um, definitely from, from an observational perspective, uh, I don't have the evidence to back it up. Maybe one day we'll write a paper about this. Uh, <laughs> definitely the awareness is there, and they, they, including myself. We, we, we do try and go out of our way to source responsibly. Contrast that with, uh, with, with my grandparents' generation. There's, there's a huge difference there. 
Uh, this generation came right out of war, and whatever they could eat, uh, they, they will eat. So, you know, so, so, sometimes um, when I come out of a party and I say, okay, well, we've, we've had a lot of meat, um, and, and meat has, uh, eating, eating red meat has, has a huge impact on the environment. Um, and, and my grandfather, my, my late grandfather, just before he passed away in 2017, he would always say, you know, but I, I, I don't feel full. And why, why, why do you care about the environment? <laughs> you know, um, if you're hungry, you got to eat. Yeah. And and then and then he will go on a whole World War Two story of how, how, how you know, uh, you know, we, we don't even have meat on our birthday. So, yeah. so if you don't eat up, uh, you, you don't you really don't know what you're missing. That's right. That's and, and, and it uh, it shows in in in, in, in culture as well. Um, uh, I mean, I, I really miss my, my, my grandfather. I will have to say that. Um, but, but one of the things I enjoyed most um, with him was going fishing with him. But even even then, you know, so I, I would fish the fish and uh, and pull it back. <laughs> you know, uh, that, that's that, that's that's the norm I was brought up with, and he, he would be extremely puzzled with that. He would, you know, he, 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 even a two inch fish, he would want to take it home. And and his rationale was, you know, it, during the war, during the Japanese occupation, people starved. <laughs> what is wrong with you? <laughs> Why are you letting the fish go? You, you spent six hours of of your of your um, precious time, <laughs> and you're gonna let that fish go. Yeah. So <laughs> it's, it's perspective. It's very yeah. true. I mean, uh, you know, it's uh, to, to to share a to share a similar story. Um, my, my my father came out as did my mother. We were very very young, out of a uh, uh, I guess a, an outcome of a post-colonial sort of uh, friction, and that was the partition, uh, where both my parents uh, were uh, well, my grandparents rather were moving from what is now Pakistan back into India, and you know moved to a part of India uh, on the east side, Calcutta, which experienced probably one of the worst famines. Uh, you know, uh, at at that time, and till today, my father, who's 82, uh, in fact, just the other day when he was uh, being asked, "Are you going to finish everything that's on your plate?" He was like, "I never waste food," um, and he and he goes back again to how you know whatever was given was always appreciated. And I think there's many people I've known, uncles and aunts and friends of different cultures, you know, whether they're Chinese, Malay, Indian, it doesn't matter. But one thing I've realized of that generation is they really don't like buffets. They find buffets to be such an orgy of waste. And uh, I, I feel so small every time I used to think I'm doing a great big deal by taking, you know, uh, some of the more elderly folk for a slap up meal where they can eat to their heart's content. And they would be just so disappointed. You know, Noel, I, I think that's something that, you, you know, you're, you're sort of reflecting on with your grandfather. That no, I have a very, I have a very contrasting experience <laughs> with, with, with my grandfather. They, they love buffets. They love they didn't, <laughs> They, yes. they, they, yeah, they didn't get a chance to gorge when, in, in their younger days. So, so when I bring them for buffets, I, I don't eat I don't and, eat <laughs> and, and they'll be like, "Why aren't you eating?" Uh, I, wish, <laughs> I wish I had that experience. I, I you know, I, I know exactly what you mean, right? I mean, that's that was my hope that they would be awesome. But that's nice to know, you know, that at least there's an a, you know a, a, an attitude towards um, the consumption of food, but. Coming back, I guess, to what's being known now in the EU in particular as the, 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 the farm to fork strategy. And there is a realization from that perspective that a sustainable food system needs to have a few key criteria. And I think 
as, as I think uh, some of you are saying that policies could be written on this topic about, you know, whether the focus is, you know, the environmental impact, whether that really matters to populations who are now able to access the food that they weren't able to do other, uh, or is it trying to sort of maintain and ensure that biodiversity so that the accessibility of certain types of food that Somnia just mentioned, that certain regions, uh, you know, have a certain appreciation for a certain type of meal. And I think some of our other colleagues from Myanmar and, and elsewhere have referred to it in the same way is, you know, how do we ensure that the uh, biodiversity policies are in place that allows for there to be enough um, uh, of, of that of that available in times of crisis? I think there's an interesting perspective that 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 possibly comes out of this, and perhaps a question really to this panel in the few minutes we have sort of left. Um, you know, when we look at farm to fork or farm to table, and we talk about our own personal passions and our memories of food, what would be, I guess, your sort of biggest sort of, uh, I guess, thought around where this is going for the future? Where, where, where do you see uh, the, the, the prioritization of food? I mean, I, and I don't mean to jest in any way to compare it to, you know, defense and healthcare, but at the same time, do, do you see food as becoming a critical voice in government? Do you see food and the value of food and the, 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 the relationship of that to their economy as becoming something of a priority that we'd be looking at? And I guess that's an open question for, for whoever would like to answer that one. Um, well, for me, I believe it because, um, like, you can see there were, um, uh, like, uh, example, like, um, in uh, Vietnam, they have pork, like, it's worldwide food, and the other Tom Yam food from Thailand. And, yeah, Cambodian now, in our IT office, we have working for the Quetil Phnom Penh. This is like economics and commerce together, and we try to promote uh, each uh, our traditional food in order for the worldwide well known. So after that, I, I believe that there's a lot of tourism, and we can have make our uh, food federation or something that attracted more tourists, more tourists, mm -hmm. and yeah, and promote our tourism. So yeah, food is very important for each country and culture. Thank you. Yeah, Scott, your point of view? Yeah, I think I think you've hit the nail on the head in that food security is is, is well, you, you mentioned you know defense policy and stuff, but governments are definitely working on policies on food security, food security, and and certainly one element of food security is is about you know. Um, is about thinking more locally um, because you know you kind of got to you got to what do you say um, you know get things in in your own home before you you, you try and help others I suppose is, is sort of you know um, the, the the way that we most people think about security in in more traditional senses and the same goes with food so um, yeah I think I think you're right that it's definitely something that governments are, are increasingly uh, focused on um, but of course you know like any kind of you say um, good functioning society there's a conversation between government and and you know the citizens the you know, people electing them or, or at least you know the people um, you know um, living under those governments and and I think that there's increasingly um, you know in, in certain parts of the world this is not the case everywhere but increasingly those conversations that are also directing um, governments to, to 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 make to to be more decisive and 
and take decisive action on, on some of these issues. Absolutely. Noel, what would you ask? Yeah, and, and, and certainly, and the flip side of it I'm seeing is that because food is such a fundamental thing to, to every one of us, um, one, one of the flip side effects of it is it tends to be politicized or, 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 or overly so in some cases. Um, and it also tends to lead to short term decision making from some governments, quite unfortunately. Um, and we see a fair bit of this in, 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 in developing countries where, 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 you know, short term decisions are made, uh, for food to get to, to, to a certain people group, for example, and for, for valid reasons, for absolutely legitimate reasons, right? Um, um, certain people groups are more vulnerable. Certain people groups are, uh, uh, are, are living in, 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 in levels of poverty, uh, much lower relative to, to other groups. And, and, I, and I get that. Um, but always the trade-off is, is a long-term strategy towards sustainability and towards a shared sense of food security and, and uh, this this really is some something that uh, that, that is always that, that has always been uh, I think a sticking point and it's, it's it will continue to be and the next generation of, of, of policy makers uh, you know I will certainly hope uh, really takes an open-minded view of these things Absolutely. Uh, and I think you said that perfectly with the idea that uh, this is shared accountability and shared responsibility. Uh, and I think that's come across from this entire panel. It looks like we've sort of running fast out of time. I think uh, we are close to the hour. Um, all I can say is that, you know, bringing the passion of food uh, with uh, uh, LKY MPA students, uh, we could be here for the next few hours. Um, but we do need to uh, wind this down. And I think, first of all, want to thank uh, the organizers, uh, the producers, if I can say. Uh, that's uh, the wonderful duo, Gaurav and Nomu, who have put a lot of effort uh, into producing these series. And we want to really thank them for all their effort. I want to thank uh, Somnia, Scott, Noel, for myself. It's just been fascinating, as always, to get the chance to learn so much more. And hopefully for our listeners, this has been an interesting time spent. Uh, as we all wander off now towards what we're going to plan to have for dinner, perhaps we'll give a thought a little bit towards how do we try and manage uh, the consciousness of food um, alongside uh, the realization of its security. Thank you all very, very much and uh, look forward to the next series. All right. Bye-bye.